Okay, welcome to the podcast. Today we have Alexander Coliari, who um, has a PhD, and I'm going to let him introduce himself so that we get it right, Alexander, uh, if you don't mind, sir. Uh, yes, so I'm currently a PhD student enrolled at the University of Brighton, and me and my colleagues have been working on a project that has been trying to investigate if uh, muscle exhibits a memory of anabolic steroid exposure in humans, as there is some evidence from a paper published in 2013 that has shown in mice that if you give mice anabolic steroids, obviously their muscle fiber cross-sectional area increases in size. And also that occurs because the number of nuclei inside their muscle fibers goes up. But then that's if you remove the drugs from them, for three months, which is actually 10% of the mice's lifespan. And then you expose the mice to a resistance training stimulus. The mice that were previously exposed to anabolic steroids actually build muscle at a much faster rate. And at the end of the two weeks of that training stimulus, they actually have muscle fibers that are 20% larger. So there seems to be a retained benefit potentially from anabolic steroid usage. And the idea there is because the number of nuclei inside their muscle fibers has not decreased through time after the steroids have been removed. They've remained at an elevated high level and that enabled them to then grow muscle at a faster rate, even though 10% of their life had passed after they were no longer taking steroids. Holy they didn't make smokes. it to the same, didn't make it to the same size that they were when they were exposed to steroids, but their rate of growth was much faster because the nuclei is still high. And so if your nuclei levels are still being retained at high levels, uh, post steroids exposure, then that could mean in humans that you're taking steroids, you get caught, you undergo a four-year ban, potentially you don't take any steroids during that time period, then you go back and re-enter your sport, potentially still retaining a benefit. And that muscle memory mechanism has applicability here to the length of ban in sport. It also has applicability to the idea of the integration of transgender athletes into sports, because as a male who's transitioning into a female, uh, they have high circulating testosterone levels for a number of years, they then drop down, and then they can go into the female category of sports. That muscle memory mechanism might still uh, pertain into that scenario and it also pertains into normal resistance training as well because that same mechanism of myonuclei increasing from muscle growth and then res residing inside the muscle despite muscle loss in size is also the idea is if someone is a normal natural resistance trainee and they get injured they have to tie away time away from the barbell and training when they go back to training they still experience a faster rate of muscle regrowth than growth in the first instance. And so myonuclide retention is the proposed mechanism of muscle memory. When I started my PhD in 2017, the idea was myonuclide permanent and they last forever. Now actually there's been further restudies in mice that don't involve steroids, just involve normal forms of resistance training like running on a weighted wheel. The myonuclide numbers after that form of exposure to hypertrophy, the myonuclide numbers actually go down. So they may not be permanent. So it's a bit of a question in the air as to are they permanent? Are they not permanent? We don't really know. The hmm. current, current consensus in 2020, the review paper that's reviewed the literature over the past couple of years is that there is no consensus on the topic, if they're permanent or not. But there's been a limited amount of research in terms of anabolic steroid memory, particularly in humans. And so our study has tried to recruit a cohort of past users to see are their myonuclide numbers still high? And if they are still high, that could mean as a proxy that they've been retained at a high level because of their steroid usage in the past. And there's been two other studies that have also done that. And one, and one of them did find still a high level. The other one found a high level, but only in type two muscle fibers. The other one found a high level across all fibers. And um, we are also trying for the first time to monitor guys through time while they cycle off steroids. Uh, 
and measure them afterwards and see how much muscle mass do they lose and taking a biopsy just as they finish and then 20 weeks later to then see if their fibers decrease inside are their nuclear numbers still the same so that's the study we've tried to do obviously a pandemic has got in the way of everyone's mm. lives and has impacted our recruitment capabilities but um and put that on hold but prior to the pandemic we still did have 61 participant visits occur in total we're in the process of trying to put all of that together and try to publish some of the data hopefully as soon as possible um and then the other aspect of the phd research is to try and investigate the effect of anabolic steroids on gene expression because they as a category of drugs uh, when you take them they bind to the androgen receptor inside your cells and if we're talking about muscle cells but the androgen receptor is present in loads of different cell types your brain your blood uh, your scalp your skin and that's why a lot of the it causes a lot of the associated secondary side effects and unwanted side effects of taking steroids um, so in the muscle cells or indeed all those other cells when the androgen uh, the androgen or the anabolic steroid binds to the androgen receptor it will move into the DNA and it will move into the nucleus of the cell or bind to the DNA. It will turn on the genes and then cause proteins to be made. And that enhanced rate of protein synthesis is what causes muscle growth. And that's the classical genomic way pathway in which the binding occurs for the androgen receptor. There are other pathways that occur, non-genomic mode of action of growth, but that's one of the most focal ones. And so by collecting muscle and blood from people who are taking steroids and preserving it in a manner where we can look at that gene expression, we'll get a better understanding of how does a drug interact with the antigen receptor in the body. And potentially with the muscle, you get a better understanding of how it causes growth. And with the blood, potentially that could become the interesting of a new marker for a drug test as you could see, uh, is there differences in the genes that are being expressed inside someone's blood because of the superphysiological levels of androgen receptor binding that is occurring versus people who are not taking drugs and superphysiological levels of androgen receptor binding is not occurring. So that's the project I've been involved in now. Um, and I'm in the process of analyzing all of those samples and doing gene expression experiments at the moment. And we finished our microscopy analysis of counting all the myonuclei and hopefully all of that will come out soon. Um, obviously a pandemic's delayed quite a bit and during that time that's when i've sort of done a bit more of analysis of uh, anabolic steroid detection rates in weightlifting and also the effectiveness of the long-term storage of samples at the olympic games and catching doping medalists um, and that's pretty much everything i've done as we discussed before uh, i follow powerlifting as a sport i help referee in my local federation here in the uk help out with the drug testing as well i have done that for about five years now um, and yeah, so I'm excited to hear today to talk to you about anything you want to talk about in terms of anabolic steroids usage in sport and uh, look forward to chatting. Yeah, that's okay. Go ahead, Rory. <laughs> um, Alexander, just for uh, like, I guess, accessibility reasons, can you like very briefly explain uh, why the density of uh, myonuclei in a muscle cell is important to the muscle growth like i think like you referenced that a couple of times um, but i like, didn't really go into a lot of detail so can you just explain that real quickly for for the listeners uh, before, yeah, we, no before we move on so muscle fibers by volume are the largest cells inside the human body so you can imagine that you have a muscle fiber that goes from your hip all the way down to your knee and that a single fiber as a cylindrical cell unit would be regarded as a single cell and most cells inside the human body, like your kidney or your liver or your skin or your brain, has a single nucleus that holds the DNA that is the structural unit that is then thereby subsequently responsible for the protein synthesis that's occurring inside that cell. But muscle fibers by volume are so big 
they have to actually have many nuclei within them to support that huge volume of cell mass. And so they're multinucleated. And the technical term for that is they exist in a syncytium. And that's one of the few cell types inside the human body that does exist as a syncytium. There's a couple of other immune cells that are like that. But muscle fibers, because of this large volume, they have to have many nuclei. And the idea is that the nucleus is then the structural unit that's responsible for protein synthesis inside the cell. So if you want muscle hypertrophy to occur, and that means that the muscle fiber increases in size, then you need the rate of protein synthesis inside that muscle fiber to increase and be above net protein breakdown for a sustained period of time. And you can do that by stimulating protein synthesis inside the muscle. And you can also do that by increasing the number of nuclei inside the muscle fibers. And that is a normal adaptation that occurs from resistance training and is one of the primary routes in which muscle fibers increase in size and hypertrophy occurs. Um, and that's why the number of nuclei is important in regards to the capacity of a muscle fiber to grow. And so if steroids and natural resistance training, both even the study suggests independently cause increases in the number of nuclei, then the idea is, well, are they long lasting? Because if they are, then that muscle fiber is always going to have a high propensity to grow and is retained a potential long-term benefit from that steroid exposure. Hmm. It is interesting, the muscle as memory theory, but also how would steroids itself increase that? How would it be the direct benefit of it? So steroids, when someone takes them and they bind to the androgen receptor, the androgen receptor will move into the into the, the nuclei, into the nuclei inside the muscle fibers, and it will cause them to make more proteins. And so protein synthesis can go up. And at the same time, there are uh, stem cells inside muscle fibers. They actually reside on the outside of the muscle fibers. And because they're on the outside, they call them satellite cells, just like satellites orbit the earth. These satellite cells, you know, in a basic way, orbit the muscle fiber. And they are a population of stem cells that interestingly, as you get older through time, decrease through time. Yeah. Um, but the androgen receptor and indeed normal resistance training, uh, androgen receptor, anabolic steroid binding and normal resistance training can cause those stem cell, that satellite cell to divide in two. One of them will remain as a stem cell so that you don't deplete the stem cell population inside your muscle. And the other one will migrate and move inside the muscle fiber and go through a, a cascade of changes that eventually result in it being regarded as a myonuclide proper that is then responsible for subsequent protein synthesis inside the cell. And that's how the number of nuclei inside the cells increase. So you can, this. you can resistance train normally and you can get satellite cell donation. But we also know from administrations of steroid, administration of studies of steroids that satellite cell donation occurs even in the absence of the resistance train. Oh, wow. Yes. So if you do both, you get double the benefit. <laughs> so you could actually take steroids, not strength train and still have muscle growth like that. Like, yes, like a substantial amount or? Uh, we're talking kilos of fat-free mass gain. Yeah. Five, oh, wow. six kilos. Yeah. There's a famous administration study in 1996 by someone called Chandelier Basin, where they gave uh, super physiological doses of testosterone in a graded amount. And uh, 600 milligrams of testosterone was given to some of those people for up to 20, for 20 weeks. And uh, they gave them to people who they said, do not do any resistance training. And those people still gained muscle mass and the number of myonuclei in their fibers did go up. Holy smokes. I mean, not to take away, um, you know, you always hear people who, who do use PDs be like, it doesn't just, 
make you grow muscle or get you, get you strong without the hard work. And I'm sure they work hard, but you can actually take it and not work at all and still see gains, yes, which is pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> but bear in mind, they're giving that to probably like quite an untrained population of people. Right. Okay. So, gotcha. they, so they may not have had any sort of muscle growth going on before. So that could be their first stimulus for satellite cell donation to ever occur. Right. Whereas if someone had already kind of trained a bit, maybe that's not going to be that to same level of degree, you know? Um, from memory it was really significant though right like it was like four kilos of muscle growth over 20 weeks or something for the for the population that took yes. drugs and sat on a couch like that's, it was like very large that's incredible yes. that's like, yes. yeah it's close to 10 pounds and uh yeah wow i believe muscle mass so, more than the group that exercised and didn't take drugs i i think wasn't it or uh, com- comparable com- comparable, comparable, to the group. comparable yeah. yes and the exercise that took drugs and exercised obviously had the most yeah Rory, and people who didn't do drugs and didn't exercise didn't gain any muscle, uh, like just, <laughs> just for completeness. Um, surprisingly, like, <laughs> surprisingly, yeah, shocking finding there. You're gonna ask que- sorry, you're gonna have to actually do something to, to get stronger, right? Uh, you're, you're gonna ask a question here, Roy. Uh, somewhere in the middle, I think I jumped in as well, though. Do you remember what that was? I do not. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> um, that's interesting. And, and tell us a little bit about the the uh, anti-doping studies that you, I read in that article as well, that you had some findings there, Alexander. Yes. Uh, so the sport of weightlifting at the moment is really on the warning list by the International Olympic Committee and is potentially on the verge of getting removed as an Olympic sport. And um, because of its level of doping that has occurred in recent times, which of a study I did looking at that, basically what's happened in is that they've cut back the number of people that are competing in weightlifting at the Olympics. So there was 260 weightlifters at Rio 2016, but in Paris 2024, they've just announced recently that they're, they're going to cut down um, the number of weight categories by four and they're only going to allow 120 weightlifters to compete at Paris 2024. And the main reason for that occurring is uh, since 2004, uh, which was when the World Anti-Doping Agency Code came into effect. So that's the World Anti-Doping Agency is the governing body for anti-doping globally. And prior to 2004, they didn't they didn't have a a code that was into effect so all of the different sports swimming cycling track and field weightlifting they all would have had their own lists of prohibited substances their own rules around what drugs people could take legally and lawfully because they had a medical requirement for them the length of sanctions the length of returning to sports uh, all of that stuff would have been different whereas once the world anti-doping agency became one unified body to try to bring all these different federations together and sing from the same hymn sheet so to say Uh, All of that was different. So the code came into effect in 2004. And since 2004, uh, it's it's been decided that you can store samples for long term reanalysis, because the World Anti-Doping Agency even knew back then that the detection science at that time could mean that people were getting drug tested at that time, but were testing negative. But the reality is that a few months ago, they were probably taking performance enhancing drugs, but they just stopped their regimen prior to the anticipated drug test at the competition. And if they weren't getting drug tested out of competition at a sufficient high enough level, then they potentially are slipping through the net at these in-competition drug tests at the Olympic Games. And so they decided that they originally stated as a deterrent effect, what they would do is 
all samples that are going to be collected at winter or summer Olympic Games from 2004 onwards, the International Olympic Committee would finance the long-term storage of those samples. So these athletes would be, say, urine tested, and their urine would then be shipped away from the event of interest and stored uh, IOC property for long-term uh, storage. And the idea is at some point, the detection science is going to improve, and you could then go back and look into those samples and you could then reanalyze them with the improved detection science. And around 2015, 2016, uh, there was a very large improvement in the ability to detect metabolites of oral steroids. And so we're talking drugs like Terinabol, uh, Winstrol, Anavar, Dianabol. They all can be taken as injectables, but in most instances uh, they could be taken orally. And it could be thought of potentially that, say, around 2008, 2012 time, the detection windows of the drugs may have been a matter of weeks, whereas in 2015, 2016, it increased up to a matter of months. There's a bit of a sliding scale with those timeframes because we're talking about administration studies where they're giving one or two administration events, not what would be a regular servo cycle for someone that probably would be trying to gain true performance enhancement. But in general, that's roughly what we're talking about. So there's been a massive expansion in the detection window of the ability to detect those drugs because when you take these substances they undergo something called first pass metabolism which means they get rendered into various different types of metabolites that get placed into your urine and the scientists in the world anti-doping agency accredited laboratories are looking for those metabolites and so around that 2008 2012 kind of to even 2004 time frame the metabolites that were known to science were potentially only getting excreted into your urine for a few weeks after the administration stopped but then 2015, 2016, it turns out that they discover from administration studies, this whole new class of metabolites that were not known to science beforehand, which they called long-term metabolites. They were actually diagnostic. That means they were coming from those compounds, but they were actually getting placed in their urine for months after the administration event. <sighs> and so once the scientists realized, huh, they're, there's this whole new category of metabolites we didn't know occurred. We've done these administration studies and we've discovered them. They're getting placed in the urine for months after administration has occurred, which is better than the metabolites known at the time. The International Olympic Committee decided that what they can do is they can go back and reanalyze the samples that they stored at the Olympic Games. And uh, weightlifting happened uh, to be along with athletics, the two sports that had the highest number of athletes get caught from the retrospective reanalysis of samples. So retrospective means that the, it's a, the collection of the sample happened prior and they're then reanalyzing it. And uh, it's, it's actually quite surprising how many people they've actually managed to catch, uh, yeah. catch in that regard. So, yeah. so we're talking from 2004, 2008 and 2012, 142 athletes uh, respectively were identified to have committed doping violations from samples collected at the 2004, 2008, and 2012 games after the IOC decided to reanalyze their samples. And metabolites of uh, Terinabol and Winstrol were present in 90% of those samples. So they're disproportionately represented for sure but that's because their detection window improved the most and if when you're looking at it you had 64 people who are competing athletics get caught 
162 weightlifters, which actually accounted for 89% of the total. And uh, in weightlifting, there was actually 34 original medalists getting caught uh, from 2008 and 2012 from these retests. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a large number. It was so bad in London 2012 that there were instances where you had entire podiums testing positive for drugs retrospectively. Yikes. Of which the most famous is the men's 94 kilo category in London, where you had six of the top 10 testing positive retrospectively because of the detection of, of these steroids, uh, where you had both gold, silver, bronze, and fourth place all test positive. So the fifth place winner gets upgraded to gold. The sixth place person tested positive. So the seventh place person gets upgraded to silver. The eighth place person tested positive. And then the ninth, oh place, ninth place competitor gets upgraded to bronze. This gets announced in 2016. And that same bronze medal person is then refused entry into Rio because they then test positive for steroids out of competition oh in 2016. My God. <laughs> and when you look at weightlifting in general, over an 11 year period from 2008 to 2019, they have had 565 sanctions occur because of doping violations of which in 82% of those instances, it's because anabolic steroids have been detected. So 565 sanctions over an 11 year period uh, is, is a huge number because if, if there's 52 weeks in a year and 11 years, that's 572 athletes if one tested positive every single week for 11 years straight, and we have 565. So it's very close to that number. So it's a yeah. massive number, okay? Massive number. Yeah. And so the president of the International Olympic Committee himself is directly quoted as saying when these reanalyses were occurring that weightlifting has, quote, a massive doping problem. And so because of this, and also because of revelations that it's a president of 20 years, Tamas Ayan, um, has been involved in financial corruption, where he's potentially embezzled money and, and millions has gone missing. He also potentially, well, the McLaren report, which was an independent investigation into all of this, confirmed that he had given cash bribes to people to vote for him. And at the same time, had also... Uh, deliberately delayed notifying 18 weightlifters from Azerbaijan where they knew that their samples had contained prohibited substances and so by default they should have been notified of that instantly and then uh, served the doping violation and then eventually likely served a sanction if it's a real result they actually delayed the announcement of those so that those Azerbaijani athletes could compete and eventually win medals at international competitions that happened to be held in Azerbaijan at that time and it's deemed that the president himself delayed notifying the athletes and he also did not ident did not uh, uh, follow through with 21 Turkish with Turkish weightlifters who had uh, substances found in their urine from out of competition drug tests they were also not followed through appropriately and there's also seems to be another at least 41 hidden cases and 10 other cases in which positive findings have not been followed through properly because of potential corrupt president at the time who has now since been ousted and the sports having to go through a whole reform and a revoting process uh, after this report has found out all of this information and because of all of that uh, weightlifting is on the verge of potentially getting removed from the Olympics. It's been punished by having this large cut in uh, in in quota 
And so uh, that, that's why I've written a paper in regards to how bad doping has been in weightlifting over these past few years and also how successful it has been in terms of long-term sample storage and catching these athletes. Because when you actually look at it, it, it actually turns out that at the Olympic Games, uh, you're only catching uh, a very small number of people at that time with... Uh, the available science at that moment. So you're looking at out of all of the medals that have been associated with doping from 1968, when drug testing began to 2012, which is when uh, just now in 2020, in the summer of 2020, the reanalysis period has ended for 2012. You're looking at 134 medal winning performances being associated with doping. And only 35 of those 134 medals were actually identified at the time of the games yeah all of the other so that's 74 percent which is obviously the vast majority of medals that have impacted by doping that doping has been identified retrospectively um and you're looking at 76 medals being identified by ioc mandated retesting of the 2004 2008 2012 games uh, which makes you think that other continental championships that were occurring at that time, European championships, uh, um, you know, Pan American championships, Asian championships, world championships, none of those have to commit to long-term sample storage. And so if these athletes were taking potentially these performance enhancing drugs in out of competition time periods before the Olympic games, they were ceasing their drug regimen with enough weeks so that the drugs cleared their urine at the time of collection at the games and the science at the time could not find those known metabolites they may well have been repeating that same process for these other competitions. But if there's no long-term sample storage occurring at those competitions, then that doping will never be identified. Um, so that's this study sort of shows the effectiveness of the long-term sample storage of, of these samples. And that the fact that the bulk of people who have been caught doping at the Olympics have been caught that way. And if you look at the IOC mandated retesting, on average, those 76 medals, it took 6.8 years to announce that that doping had been identified, which is a huge dis disparity in time and means that that person never got to stand on the podium at the time of the games, never got to enjoy their anthem being played, being handed the rightful medal that they should have owned, and all of the financial and sponsorship benefits right. and the prestige that would have happened at the time of winning that medal. All of that is lost to them. And seven years later, they find out that they have, you know, won this medal. And initially, when this retesting was first going on, uh, some of the, they didn't have like a set program of how to reallocate the medals. And there's a, a report of an American shot putter, his name's Adam Nielsen, who was the rightful gold medal winner from the Athens 2004 men's shot put event, which actually took place in the ancient Olympic Stadium and was with the women's shot put event, the only event to take place in the ancient Olympic stadium. He won the rightful gold medal, but he didn't find out a fact till nine years later. And he was handed his medal in the food court of an airport local to him, where someone from the Olympic committee met him. And uh, he was given it outside of Burger King. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, your window's passed. You're not writing books. You're not doing speaking no. tours. You're not, it's over. No. Anything you would have capitalized from, it's over. It's, the window's already gone. Yes. You know? And so from what you can see from that study is that the thing is that the effectiveness of the out of competition drug testing prior to those games 
was not at a sufficiently high enough level to catch those people if they were taking steroids out of competition in the run-up to the games. So when they did store their samples from the games and the detection window did improve, they could then go back and find out that they were actually doping. But then it has this massive impact where you have to reallocate medals seven years later. So if anything, what should be learned from this is that the frequency of out-of-competition drug testing has to be high enough prior to these big competitions so that you you catch people before the thing actually happens, as opposed to storing their samples, waiting for science to improve, going back and looking at them, and then catching people years after the fact. But long-term sample storage is debated. Is it good? Is it not good? Well, it's caught the most number of doping medalists at the Olympics so far, so it probably should continue to stay to at least try and provide some sort of sporting justice to these original rightful medal winners. But at the same time, it can never replace winning the medal in real time and the associated benefits that occur from that. There's even an academic from the University of Stirling in Scotland called Paul Dimio, who's wrote, written a book called The Crisis of Anti-Doping. And he says that this whole idea of having long-term sample storage of urine samples to go back and look at them for drugs after the detection window is improved and the science is improved means that you render live sport to a meaningless spectacle. That's his direct quote, because you do not know who the genuine winner is until after the reanalysis is improved, which could be 10 years later. Yeah. So what are you watching in real time? You're watching who can pass the drug test at that time, potentially, but who might not pass the drug test that they come up with in 10 years time. Right. I seen the, everyone's seen those memes where it's like, can't wait to watch the Olympics to find out in 10 years who won. <laughs> Is that is that right? Is that right? I mean, does it ruin? Does it make you not want to watch the sport, or do you think that's a good sort of like net that they've got going on so that you can eventually find out the people? I mean, the fact it's been this successful means I'll tell you that it's going to definitely continue. And at the end of the day, the Olympics are the only people that are financing it to take place. Like national national federation, you know, international federations at their own European worlds or continental games, they're not financing for this to occur. It's only happening at the Olympics. So mm. the fact it's been so successful at the Olympics, which you would argue is a very prestigious competition. Oh yeah. Then oh, it's yeah. Prob- probably would have happened to all those other events as well, but there's no long-term sample storage. So who, so. I, I, I guess there is, um, if nothing else, there's a threat now where okay, like at, initially before the storage started happening, you know, you might not feel threatened. You might be like, look, yeah. we're beating the test. Let's keep going. But yeah. even if 10 years later, people start getting like black eyes, you get your medals taken away. Now, at least if, if I'm doping, I'm threatened by it being like, I might get away initially, but it could catch up to me. And even if, if you say, well, you have 10 years to try to write your books, you're running around and, and, and capitalizing, but you'll end up like Lance Armstrong where the guy gets absolutely hated and there's still a threat. It's something yes. is better than nothing. Like I agree with you in terms of it's better if it's on the spot, but something's better than nothing. If, if I'm threatened, yes. like, listen to me, are you sure you want to write the book? The bigger you blow up your opportunity, your window of 10 years before you get dirty, mm. the bigger you blow up your star, the bigger the star implodes when you do, when it eventually does come out. And it looks like eventually it will come out. So you better think about that. Your kids are going to feel the repercussions, your country. So I do believe the storage, even if not immediate, justice, even if slow justice, is still justice and threatening. What, what do you think? Or it... So it's interesting you say that because that is the logical thought that it is a deterrence effect. And when in 2004, the, the World Anti-Doping Agency Code was written, there was initial 
it was you know written down in the code that samples could be stored for eight years and reanalyzed when technologies improved to find drugs that were previously undetectable or metabolites that were previously undetectable and the whole idea of that was that it should be a deterrence effect which makes total logical sense right but but paul dimio with his book the crisis and anti-doping actually argues when you look at the timeline where some of this has been identified at least initially now this might change but at least initially the deterrence effect was probably not actually working um because the the first time ever that olympic samples were reanalyzed actually occurred i've talked heavily here about anabolic steroids because that's where the most medalists have been caught but actually in 2008 at the beijing olympics six months after the fact a new test was generated to detect a drug that's abbreviated to sera which calls which stands for continuous epo receptor activator so sera was uh is a drug that will increase the amount of red blood cells that you have inside your body that can increase your performance in endurance sports like cycling for example mm. and at the time of the Beijing games there's no drug test whatsoever for Sera. it's essentially undetectable right and the athletes probably know that and six months after the Beijing games concludes the anti-doping laboratory in Lausanne which is actually where these samples are now stored for the long term develops a new test that has the ability to detect Sera in blood samples and so they then retest all of the serum samples that were collected at the 2008 Beijing Games six months after the fact. So we're talking early 2009. And they actually, at that time in early 2009, catch six athletes, including two medalists. And they have to then reallocate those medals eventually. So in early 2009, this has come to fruition. Okay, Samples have been stored for the long term. They've been reanalyzed with a new test that didn't exist before that's been able to detect a, a drug that was undetectable before and has actually caught people and caught medalists and they're now having to go through this whole reallocation process. So that's in early 2009. So people people know that this is going yeah. on. Okay. okay. <laughs> but then but, but then 2012 London Olympics, okay, comes around. And uh, what's what's going on here uh, is at London at the time of the games. They're catching two medalists doping at the time of the games, August 2020, uh, 2012, sorry, August 2012. Okay. By the end of the reanalyst window, summer 2020, they actually catch 38 medalists oh, from wow. the reanalyst of samples. Okay. So the idea is that the deterrence effect has therefore probably not worked because those athletes would have been aware that of what was going on. But they were, albeit taking a different category of drugs, so maybe they would have thought that the detection window could not have improved. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah, I see. And so the deterrence effect has it. Well, the the idea of a new test coming along and detecting a drug and a medal reallocation has had occurred, but not with the category of drugs they were taking. So maybe they thought they were going to be immune to it and it wasn't going to happen. However, it did obviously eventually happen, and it ended up catching hundred and you know well over hundred people, hundred forty two people um and so uh now because it's happened so heavily and actually the vast majority of people who have been caught doping at the olympics like 74 percent of people that have been caught who are medalists doping at the olympics has occurred because it happened retrospectively and after things were reanalyzed maybe now it will act as a deterrent effect but at least initially it didn't but that argument is always still given that it acts as a deterrent effect but paul dimio sort of argues like is it really because that didn't happen in the initial phases, but maybe now it's been so, so far level to that extent that it could act as a deterrent effect. 
But even if it doesn't mm. act as a deterrent effect, at least now it definitely shows for these category of oral steroids that their detection window has improved dramatically. We're talking like leaps and bounds. So if anything, it will suggest to athletes that that is not a drug that potentially they want to pick to dope with because the detection window has improved so much. So I might put them off taking that specific drug and then they may transition to try to use drugs with shorter detection times, shorter detection windows. And then you might then up in this continuous, anti-doping is always in this continuous arm race between people trying to dope and then trying to get caught. Right. But if long-term sample storage is happening, it enables the science to catch up with the drugs that they're using at the time that are undetectable, go back, have a look at them and potentially catch them. So that's happened now. Will that continue to happen in the future? It depends on the involvement of the science and ultimately what category of drugs are people going to transition into using now? Because a lot of these oral steroids now you think would sort of be not on the list of things to use anymore. Okay. Especially now, because in the run-up to the Tokyo games, the IOC has even said they're going to store for the long-term samples that they collect out of competition prior to the games taking place, which is the first time that's ever happened. So you know, uh, it, does it act as a deterrent? Maybe now it does. In the past, maybe not. But maybe now it's been so successful that it does. But if anything, it does show that this category of drugs is their detection has improved significantly, and thereby may prevent people from wanting to use them anymore. I wonder, and Roy, I'm gonna let you jump in here as well. Um, but I do wonder, like, to your point, if if situations like a Lance Armstrong, where, all right. We know they're starting to bust people, but when the shaming and literally like, there's no coming back for, I saw, I heard him on Joe Rogan. He's like years afterwards, there's still no coming back for him. Like he gets stopped. Joe Rogan says, how often now do you still get it? He's like every single day, every single day, if I'm out in public. Um, and if I'm not in public on social media, wherever I pop up, it's following me and it's following me hard. Like it's not, so it depends on it, but there's going to be for every time there's Lance Armstrong, who's super high profile. There's going to be somebody who's much less profile or even, and we'll get into this in a second, you're from certain regions where maybe it's just not viewed the same. You know, they, they just don't view doping violations quite the same. It, the stigma isn't there. Um, so, I mean, I have a couple of questions. So that's one of them is I want to get into the regions we, what we looked at in terms of detections, failure rates um, popping up at certain regions and what that might mean. Um, as well as you had mentioned in there, um, you know, out of me competition versus in competition tests and the detection windows and, and what we might be seeing there in terms of like what works best and what, what we saw, you know, recently and possibly moving forward. So maybe you could speak on those too. I know, uh, I don't know which one you want to tackle first, but um, in your article, you have some good information on both. It's quite Well, you're talking there about uh looking looking at people who got caught doping in the past and and society's view on them say right. in lance armstrong yeah i agree i the, what you've said is is definitely occurring in his that's his experience but say for example in weightlifting where you have Ilya illin who won gold medal at the 2008 and 2012 olympic games and got caught retrospectively doping on both occasions and had to have both Olympic gold medals taken from him and reallocated in both instances because of the detection of anabolic steroids, where at that time he would have passed the drug tests of 2008 and 2012. But when the detection science improved in 2015 and 16, they found those long-term metabolizers of steroids in his urine and he had to lose his gold medals. 
he's still loved in the sport of weightlifting. Mm. You know, he even tried to make a comeback and tried to qualify again for Tokyo, but it didn't happen. But I mean, the Asian weightlifting championships just happened like less than a month ago. He was in the back room hug- hugging the winner who of the, of the weight category that he would have competed in, who actually happened to have also had doping violations in the past as well. So surprise, surprise. It, it, it's well, different. Here's the thing. It's different. With it's him, different. Do, do these athletes not realize he took somebody's medal, somebody's glory, somebody's somebody who was who was clean, trying to operate on the up and up. Mm. He took that from them twice in a row and would have mm. done it a third time if given the opportunity. But the athletes are still. I mean, that's what it, you know. We see it in powerlifting as well to an extent, right? Where um, sometimes a, a lifter pops, leaves, goes into the untested, and it's kind of forgotten of. You're you're, yeah. you're right. It's uh it's weird. I'm not I'm not entirely yeah. sure. But he he's so loved because for, so at the London 2012 Olympic Games, his total was actually above that of the weight category above him. Oh, wow. So he competed in the 94 kilo class, and his total was greater than what the 105 kilo class was in London 2012. And uh, both the gold medalists in the 105 and the 94, both of them. Uh, got caught taking anabolic steroids retrospectively in London 2012. And then again, Ilya Ilin in the London 94 kilo weight category, that was the one where you had six guys out of the top 10 all testing positive, including everyone on the podium. So, and the fourth place. <laughs> so, right. Uh, yeah. So, so he's kind of like, he's almost like a Lance where Lance would say, use the argument. Um, if you want to take Everyone away, was doing it. Right. That's exactly Right, yes. right. Yes. He's like, if you want to go ahead and take number one from me, go, uh, sure, give number one to the number one position to the next clean guy, but that's going to be your current 19th place guy. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that exact thing happened in the uh, Tour de France, right? Like, there's years where there's no recorded winner for the Tour de France because every single person that they tested popped, right? That's like, insane. is it? 2004 five and six or something? There's like, they tested all of the top 30 guys and all of them popped, and so they just like didn't record a winner. Did I get those dates right, Alexander? Uh, roughly in that time frame, yeah. I don't know if they would have tested anyone, but it would have been like basically it was so like in this 94 kilo weight category of weightlifting in 2012, it's just so prevalent that Lance Armstrong is trying to then argue, well, you're te- you're having a go at me for doping, but the reality is everyone was doing it. Yeah, I know? didn't make the doping. Yeah, because that, that makes it better, into- right? I was born. Well, uh, yeah, it's one of the, it's a weird argument. I get what he's what he would say is like, yeah, for sure, you cheated, you cheated. It is what it is. But him saying. I walked into a dirty sport and I played ball. Right? That's essentially what he's trying to say. Yeah. So it's like, wow, they're both true though, right? Sure, yes, you did, but at the same time, but uh, but like, but I mean, the thing is, kind of like, some people would say that Ilya Sina is, is, is unfortunately the poster child for everything that was wrong with weightlifting during that time frame. So yeah. you could have a double a medal, double Olympic medalist be taking steroids on both occasions and winning, like. And the fact that it's even if the entire podium at London 2012 and fourth place was all taking steroids, it's just an epitomize. It's just, it's just, that's how bad it really is. It doesn't right. justify his behavior. It's just, it is actually that bad. And so it needs to change, you know? Uh, uh, unfortunately, him as the poster boy too, it shows that the doping works. It's just like when Ben Johnson, I'm from Canada. So Ben Johnson is a 100 meter sprinter who won gold medal for Canada and um, ended up popping. And, and it was a big deal. Like Canada winning the gold medal uh, with Ben, like the 100 meters is like the rock star event in the Olympics, right? Uh, mm-hmm. it, it might even be the 100 meter might even be the number one. If you could picture just one event, it might be. 
it's up there. It's arguable anyways. And um, so when he won, he's from Canada and he's the world's fastest man. It was absolutely massive. And um, when he popped, huge black eye for Canada, but then they found out that it was a huge b- people who previously weren't sure, like how much does doping actually help? He became a poster boy for everything wrong in that. A lot of other nations were like, we need to start getting on some doping. You know, it became the for everything wrong in sport, but it showed. Look what happened to this guy's numbers because you could see a jump. Um, I've seen on uh, documentaries on him, like what he looked like aesthetically, his muscularity, but then his numbers, and you could almost tell. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like, okay, green light on doping programs because, oh my god do they work you know and people would say you know like steroids just makes you stronger it makes you more it makes you like more explosive faster and and the whole night obviously there's blood doping to make you last longer in terms of endurance sports so no it's it's far more than just you take drugs to look like arnold schwarzenegger that is so old school when people say in certain sports um you know like baseball for instance and people like well look at him he doesn't look like a bodybuilder he doesn't need it's like, that's not we're, we're past that that's that's silly to me. Don't don't look. It's not the eye test if he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger anymore. We're well past Lance Armstrong and all these cyclists. You'd pass by him in a grocery store and think they don't even work out. They, they're the diminutive men who aren't exactly. But we're past that now. That's an old school way of thinking. It can help in so many variety of ways, including. I mean, let's be real. In, in in weightlifting, you've got sixty three kilo women taking steroids. You know. So, oh, so, so, so it's yeah. not it's not the you know three hundred pound mass monsters. It's yeah. not like that. You know? I actually want to ask you. Um, actually, sorry. I think I asked you two questions. I think we only did we only touch up on the one. Oh, yeah, by I region. Just, oh, yeah, I just say one thing there where you're talking yeah. about Canada because I know you're Canadian, but and so. Yeah. I, the one of the sort of like heartwarming stories i suppose from okay. the, the retesting was for a, for a canadian weightlifter called uh christine gerard i'm probably mispronouncing her name but she she was actually the first canadian woman to win a medal in weightlifting at the olympics where she that. originally came third at london 2012 actually turns out the gold medal and silver medal were they're actually doping they got caught retrospectively because of the det- enhanced, enhanced detection window of these oral steroids. And so now she is actually the gold medal winner from the London 2012 63 women female category. And she said that it is a shame because at that time, it would have been a massive news story to have a gold medal weightlifter from Canada. Imagine what it could have done to the sport of Canada where it's not massive. Like she's the first person to ever win a medal and it happens to it should have been gold at that time. It could have really had a boost in popularity for this relatively small sport. Uh, and that was taken away from her and she only found out like literally seven years afterwards. I'll tell you right now. So, I remember um, her, the new the, seeing in the news because I'm obviously a powerlifter. I'm in strength sports. I watch World's Strongest Man. I'm not as up and up on the Olympic weightlifting, but I, I do pay attention, at least peripherally. And I remember the news, the first medal. And we didn't have, we, if she was a gold medalist, for sure it would have had a much bigger pop in the news, much bigger pop in terms of recruitment for our youth um, to enter into the sport like her, for sure. And that's gone. Seven years later, the window's gone. We've moved on. There's new people now playing. People don't look back like seven years ago, this person shows up. No, your window of capitalization is gone. You had to have come back and had that parade and we watched the parade and remember the moment. I remember to this day, 
um, when Donovan Bailey won Canada gold medal in the Olympics. Uh, and then I remember to this day when like, like my whole family, the whole street stopped and watched it. And I remember when Donovan Bailey raced Michael Johnson, these are sporting moments that happened in the moment. But if you told me he raced, he came in, whatever. And you tell me, Oh, seven years later, by the way, do you remember? I think I sort of remember. Yeah. That guy actually came first now. That's pretty cool, man, because he's Canadian. That's what that would have been instead of this monumental event in my mind that I'll never forget as a child growing up. Or, you know, even, even if I didn't watch just reading about it and hearing about it as a child, as a, like you have 10-year-olds that happened and when they're picking their sports and picking their idols, okay, when they're 17 and they've already gone down the pathway, oh, by the way, she actually ended up being an Olympic champion. Like it changes everything. You're right. It, it's, it's... It, it, it even gets changed even more because so she actually in Beijing 2008 actually came fourth. So she missed out on the podium. Then in London 2012, she actually gets a bronze at real time. And then turns out they reanalyze eventually both Olympic games. And then turns out she did actually win a bronze in Beijing. <laughs> Oh my and, God. And, so she's and, still the first. first so she's still it, the first. There's actually four the years before. Yeah, it was actually four years before. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, Team Canada. <laughs> yeah, for Team Canada. Yeah. So actually, if it, if if they had all had sufficient amounts of out-of-competition drug testing beforehand, in theory, they would have got caught, never made it to the games. And yeah, she could have won a bronze in Beijing. Okay, let's talk about the out-of-competition out of testing. Then. And Rory, I'm sorry if I'm dominant. You, I know you have questions as well, so you feel free to jump in with questions. Uh, at any point, kind sir. But uh, let's talk about the importance of out of competition testing. And um, A, what we saw, because I was briefly rolling through your, uh, while you're talking, I'm still going through your article because I got these questions uh, noted I wanted to bring up. But out of competition testing found far more, caught far more doped athletes. And um, the importance of out of competition testing and uh, why that might be in terms of detection windows and the sophistication of beating a test when you know a test is coming. Mm -hmm. um, maybe speak on that a little bit. Yeah, so that plays into part into the fact that why the World Anti-Doping Agency wants to store samples for the long term, because they know that, say, if we're talking about anabolic steroids, that one way you can try to evade a test is you are out of competition months beforehand to decide to run a steroid cycle where you know that you'll stop a sufficient amount of time prior to the competition in question where you anticipate a test will occur and you stop with a sufficient amount of time that the metabolites known to science at that time clear your urine and are no longer detectable. And so when you are tested at competition, you have a negative test and you've passed the test, but you potentially have retaining a benefit from the steroids that you did use. Um, that's, that's our anabolic steroids. So there we're talking about potentially like oral anabolic steroids, but now, because the science has improved so much, their detection windows improve from weeks to months. And so it's potentially much harder to use oral anabolic steroids in out of competition time periods now compared to what it was like in 2008 and 12. Like the steroid cycles that those people would have been running in 2008 and 12 of those oral anabolic steroids and that time window and that regimen of usage would be detectable in real time now at this current Olympics. So that has improved notably. But that's why that wasn't available at that time. So that's why the long-term sample storage has been so helpful. But still, something like that can still occur where there's other, you can use testosterone uh, preparations that tend to be a little bit shorter acting compared uh, compared to those where that same thing could still happen where you're, and that if you're not getting tested out of competition frequently enough, 
whether it's because it's difficult for the anti-doping authorities to get into your country, whether or not there's bribes going involved to avoid the testing or whether or not in something like powerlifting, it's just not even happening full stop because of financial reasons that you can dope at will and then time the regimen enough that you then test negative at the time of competition. Uh, there's also a whole categories of drugs that are only detectable in blood versus those in urine. So for example, growth hormone is only detectable in blood. So if you know you're not going to get blood tested because that's too expensive to occur, it's not happened for you often, well, you could take growth hormone as you like because unless you're getting your blood drawn, uh, you're not going to be test positive from it via urine analysis. So out of competition drug testing is very, very important. Bear in mind around that Ben Johnson time in 1988, there was very minimal to no out of drug, out of competition drug testing occurring at all. And that was one of the big lessons from anti-doping was that time is that if Ben Johnson was drug tested a few weeks prior to that Olympic Games in Seoul, he never would have got there in the first place. You know, mm -hmm. he never would have ran the race. And so uh, that's why it's important in terms of, in terms of the detection window uh, uh, and why it needs to be at a high enough level. I think what we've, we've seen from this, because it's been so, such a high amount of medalists have been caught with the reanalysis of their samples uh, from long-term storage from this oral steroids metabolites that if out of competition drug testing did occur at a higher frequency, then, you know, those people could have potentially got caught and never made it to the games. And when you're, when you're looking at the numbers, uh, you're looking at from the 142 athletes who were caught uh, retrospectively from 2004, 2008, 2012 Olympic games, 25 nations were affected from these reanalysis and having athletes identified, but five nations actually accounted for 69% of the total. Yeah. So you had 41 Russians, 22 from Belarus, 14 from Ukraine, 13 from Kazakhstan and eight from Turkey. So those five nations accounted for 69% of the 142 athletes that are retrospectively identified from the reanalysis of samples. And so one could argue that the levels of out-of-competition drug testing were not sufficient enough in those countries prior to the games because uh, they could have got caught beforehand. That, um, that seems like a good segue into another interesting finding in one of your papers that um, you noted that different countries seem to fail for different drugs. Um, and so you noted that there was likely a cultural preference for like particular drugs or particular um, particular cycles or potentially they have like like cultural expertise in like particular drugs or, or, or something like that do you want to talk about that yeah that's i think right. that's fascinating yeah. yeah so in weightlifting when you look at the 565 sanctions that occurred from 2008 and 2019 and then you categorize what substances are being detected and uh you look at because anabolic steroids um, either exogenous ones, so an exogenous anabolic steroid would mean a synthetic one, one that is not natural to the human body. So that would be something like Terinabol, Winstrol, uh, Dianabol, these oral steroids. And you've also then got endogenous anabolic steroids. So those are ones made naturally by the human body. So that would be like testosterone. And those account for 82% of all the detection of all of the, the drugs detected from those 565 sanctions. So then if you look at how does the detection vary by global region? So the IWF stratifies uh, the globe into what they call continental federations. So you have Europe, Asia, 
Pan America, Africa, and Oceania. Interestingly, over this 11 period, not as there's no sanctions for Oceania at all. No one's caught, right? That's why Rory asked. This is okay. just a <laughs> and, and and then you've got you then got Europe and Asia, where by far the majority of anti-doping uh, sanctions are occurring. Okay, but weightlifting that globally, Europe and Asia is where it's most popular, but it is increasing in in Pan America, Africa, and and Oceania. Um, but traditionally, it's definitely been a strong European and most recent, also recently asian sport um and say so if you look at for those continental federation though those regions how is the detection of exogenous steroid metabolites so that would be things those oral steroids uh endogenous steroids so things like testosterone and other substances metabolites how are they varying by continental federation and say for example pan america so that would be canada usa south america uh, they've only only 37% uh, of detected substances are classified as markers or metabolites from exogenous steroids, whereas in Europe it's 74%. So there's there's a big difference there. Mm. And the same in Asia, 70% of the detected substances are classified as exogenous steroid metabolites like your turinoboles, anavars, etc. Uh, compared to Pan America in 37%. And so there is actually, when you compare the numbers, a statistical difference between the detection of those three categories of substances in Europe and Asia versus Pan America and Africa. Um, and so why is it that, for example, in Europe, 74% of all detected substances are exogenous steroids like terinabol, oxandrolone, dianabol, uh, anavar, things along those lines. Why, why is that? Well, it's difficult to say because you're only looking at detected substances here. Okay. So you're only looking at things that actually have been found. Of course, various other drugs could be used, but not actually be detected because of the differences in detection window and the clearance of the drugs and things like that. Um, so you can't make too many inferences on just uh, substance detection data, but it is useful knowledge to realize that there seems to be a high prevalency, particularly in this time frame, of oral steroid usage in Europe compared to Pan America. So that could be because of the availability of those drugs in Europe versus Pan America and the legality of those substances in certain different countries and the ease of access, um, as well as also potential historical usage where they've been preferred by athletes and or indeed maybe even coaches and that information has been passed on through time. Um, or indeed, it could be argued in some of these instances, there is potentially centralized or even state-sponsored doping occurring because in some of these countries, there is indeed an overrepresentation of certain substances being detected over this 11-year uh, time frame. So for the, for the 10 countries that had the highest number of sanctions over this 11-year time period, each of those countries has at least one substance that accounts for more than one-third of all of the detected substances. So, for example you have in Azerbaijan 35 sanctions, but Dianabol accounts for 38% of detected substances. Wow. In, in Kazakhstan, you have 35 sanctions and Stanozolol, which is Winstrol, accounts for 51% of detected substances. In Russia, 32 sanctions and Turinabol accounts for 52% of detected substances. And the list goes on and on and on. Um, and to Thailand, for example, 18 sanctions 
50% of their detected substances come from Dianabol and the other 50% from markers of the usage of endogenous steroids and like testosterone, testosterone precursors, etc. And very recently, Thailand has actually been potentially implicated and its federation in potential state-sponsored doping. So, um, you know, it's interesting to note that there are, there's, there's geographical regions globally between the different fe continental federations like the detected drugs in europe differ to the detected drugs in pan america and even within countries in some of the most heavily aff affected countries in terms of high numbers of sanctions there are seems to be a preference for certain substances exactly why that is the case obviously you're never going to know mm. it could be cultural preference could be coach influence athlete influence ease of detectability all of those things together mixed as one but there does seem to be a difference and it wouldn't surprise me as the years go on now, particularly as we're talking about markers, say, in Europe of, of these exogenous steroids, as they had detection windows improve so much, that there may be a move away from those substances and people start to transition to use substances that have a shorter detection window. And currently at this moment in time, anyway, are harder to detect. But if the samples are stored, that may not change in the long term. Um, I do have a minor clarification question. You uh, mentioned uh, the the three categories that we're looking for: uh, endogenous hormones, exogenous hormones, and what you referred to as other. What like, what what falls into that other category? Um, uh, like that could be things like stimulants, things yeah. like um, uh, beta two agonists like clenbuterol. Um, okay. Things along those lines, yeah. But their detection window, their their prevalency. Oh, diuretics as well. That'd be oh, yeah. another category yeah. of substance. So those those are pretty much pretty much the main ones. Um, it, but in in general, eighty two percent of all detected substances were related to steroids. Yeah, the other twenty percent is either diuretics, clenbuterol, which is a beta two agonist, uh, or stimulants. Right, and the risk with diuretics is that they're used as a masking agent. Right, like that's that's what what we're looking for there. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so the diuretic will. Uh, decrease the presence of metabolites of oral steroids in your urine quite mm -hmm. dramatically actually to the point where and way back in the day there was no drug test for diuretics so that's why you'd use them so way back in the day like in the 70s and stuff you could take um there's some great historic papers about how they've realized that athletes are using diuretics to pass drug tests uh where you could take a diuretic and they know this from now from uh, administration studies and it could like half or even more than that reduce the amount the quantity of steroid metabolites in your urine and uh and if 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 you've timed the steroid cycle okay and the diuretic okay and the diuretic is not detectable then it could drop the metabolites to so low we're talking 1970s that they're then not detectable at all wow whereas nowadays they are the diuretic itself is detectable. So um, you, you can get caught just by taking the diuretic, but that's, that's why they're on the prohibited list. But diuretics, uh, I mean, they can involve blood pressure medications and lots of other things that people have to take just for their general health and well-being, And that's why people have to uh, uh, have to get therapeutic use exemptions to use certain diuretics in sport. And that would be why, why people are like, um, you know, it's ridiculous that, uh, you know, I would pop for this medication. It's like, you, you don't know that's the science though. Yeah, that's literally right. why. Yeah. It's like, yeah. listen, or if they do pop, they're like, well, this was only this that I pop for. It's like, well, listen. My doctor gave it to me. It's right. For my for all blood pressure. 
We're all being naive, but uh, yeah, it's different. Most people know what they're doing. Um, in by region, is everybody doing the same testing? If because this is a question I have, and I would assume, but let's talk about region by region. How does the testing differ, and how it's important maybe to not differ, or maybe should they be? If you know, what's your thoughts? So one of the conclusions uh, from this, when you look over this 11 year period, is that because the vast bulk of sanctions are occurring in Asia and Europe, the frequency of testing should be higher in Asia and Europe. But in certain countries, we know that testing is nowhere near as say the same as it is in others. And in weightlifting anyway, there seems to have been some pretty bad level of corruption going on in regards to testing in certain countries where as i said the mclaren report has identified uh uh maybe i didn't mention this but 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 the president of the international weightlifting federation of 20 years tamash ajan when uh all these allegations of anti-doping corruption were made against him he uh was ousted as president and you had a new president come in interim caritimis were made and they asked for this formal report to be made against Tomas Ayan. And it turned out that uh, Tomas Ayan had actually discovered dates of out of competition drug testing. And he knew that information. Okay. We don't know what he did with that information, but the idea was that if he knew that information, then it's highly likely he would have leaked it to people. So say if he knew that X country was going to get out of competition drug tested at this time frame, he could have told them months in advance so they could have made arrangements. Okay. We don't know that for sure, but we do know because his secretaries and other people inside the Federation said that they were bullied by him to disclose what was supposed to be confidential dates of out of competition drug testing to him. So that happened. But we know also for sure that there was at one point, 18 Azerbaijani athletes uh, tested positive and the president deliberately delayed notifying them of their anti-doping rule violations. And it was discovered that there was a letter from the National Olympic Committee of Azerbaijan thanking him for doing that. Hmm. And that then enabled those Azerbaijani weightlifters to compete in grand prix competitions that happened to take place in Azerbaijan, that competition cycle. And they then competed in their home nation and won medals at the home nation. But the reality is they tested positive beforehand. And if in a timely manner, like it should have happened, their positives were processed at the correct time, they would never have made it to that competition. And you also have this instance in weightlifting as well, where 21 Turkish weightlifters tested positive for substances out of competition. But the IWF did not follow through properly with those adverse findings and did not actually end up sanctioning them and follow through in completing the process. And they actually think in weightlifting, there could be on top of those I've just mentioned, an additional 41 hidden cases and 10 other cases where adverse findings have been discovered but not followed through properly. So even if the testing is occurring, at least in weightlifting, there seems to have been some anti-doping corruption going on where there's been problems in even in positive findings being notified to the president. He's not actually doing his, what he should be doing and seeing the process through to the end in the appropriate timely manner. Um, so... Hopefully that's going to improve for weightlifting in terms of other sports. I mean, in general, there is a large disparity in the level of drug testing that is occurring in every single country. Um, I know one of my co-authors on this weightlifting paper has said that he reckons that during this pandemic, there's been well over a period of 12 months where some athletes in certain countries have not been tested at all, you know? 
mm. um, because of the difficulties with the social distancing and mm, those kinds of measures. Uh, and if, for example, now an athlete is not getting tested inside their own country by their national anti-doping agency, and you are instead paying to fly in international doping control authorities to go and drug test them, like what they're going to have to quarantine for two weeks before they drug test the person. And then you have all those problems. So, um, yes, there would be a disparity at the moment. I don't know the exact numbers on, on that, but it, it, there is in general with anti-doping national anti-doping authorities, large disparities. I just wanted to follow up here, um, with the president that obviously seemed to have been corrupted there. Would he, would that president not have been separated from the testing and the results being like, was it not? Oh, he, should have been. he should have been. Yes. Right. Like that's the conflict of interest. Is this what we're talking about here is why you need to separate who's doing exactly the testing that. then and who's collecting and who's overseeing and the control, you know, sometimes you want control like, well, I want to make sure we're testing for this. I want to make sure we're testing that. I want control but without the the change, like we've seen this with other sport, historically speaking, you got to separate um, and, and just let a third party take over. And is that what we're seeing here? That's very well said. Yes. So from cases like this, there has now been a new governing body created partially with seed funding from the International Olympic Committee called the uh, International uh, Testing Agency. And, and their goal is to make anti-doping testing independent from the organizing body of the sport to obviously prevent conflicts of interest. Excellent. And the ITA is also with the IOC. They're part of this body that's planning the long-term storage of samples um, of out-of-competition tests, tests that are occurring prior to this upcoming Tokyo Games. Um, and the idea of the ITA, of which now the International Weightlifting Federation have had to sign up to and hand over everything to the ITA. So the ITA now decide when and where drug tests happen, how many out of competition, what countries, what athletes, etc. The actual board, executive board of the International Weightlifting Federation are not to start picking dates, deciding who, reviewing results, notifying people of results like that is not happening anymore. So you bypass the opportunity for corruption of anti-doping corruption anyway, at least to a great degree by having an independent body involved. And and it, it makes you think, why was that not happening in the first place? I, well, my friend, but, for me, know. it's for me 100%, but there's still people, like, I don't want to get into powers and politics too much on you here, but there are still people <laughs> in certain nations that yeah. don't understand that there's a conflict at all. As a matter of fact, they argue for, this is ridiculous that we would give up control. And they would, uh, they don't get that. And I'm like, hi, I'm, you know, <laughs> it's yes. same. You don't want to even, it, I wouldn't even want to put myself in the conflict of interest situation like that. But, uh, no, no. but this, I mean, this is also why it's important that sports affiliate to the World Anti-Doping Agency code if they want to be a genuine drug tested sport. At least it's one of the arguments for the World Anti-Doping Agencies because the World Anti-Doping Agency is an independent body that decides the rules. The prohibited substances not the sport that decides what the prohibited substances are what substances can and can't be used with therapeutic use exemptions okay it's the world anti-doping agency that decides that so in america the nfl the nba lacrosse baseball they have their own rules set of rules that they adhere to not the same rule book that all the olympic sports are sticking to 
And CrossFit's the same. It has its own anti-doping rule book, right? Yeah, I could tell. We can tell, my man. (laughs) (laughs) As far as I know, it's not necessarily independent from the decisions that are being made. So, the you know the World Anti-Doping Agency for a long time. If you read the books of of Dick Pound, the founding president of the World Anti-Doping Agency, he was saying that they tried endlessly to try to get more of the cultural sports or whatever we want to call them non-olympic sports they're still massive embedded into culture of of these societies assigning to the world anti-doping agency code but they haven't done it and i don't think they're ever going to do it and i think the unions of some of those sports would never allow it nowadays as well right um, what do you because think because you're looking at you're looking at the nfl doping bands are a couple of weeks yeah even for steroids even for steroids Okay. Two, week, two weeks for steroids. That's okay. hilarious. They play Four once years a week. for steroids. Yeah, Four they play, years for steroids. They play sports. once a week, my friend. You miss two games for something that could change your career, make you like, it's crazy. Uh, Cost-benefit analysis for that. It says take it all the time, right? Right. Like, yeah, strong, strong yes. Catch me if you can. And if you do, I guess I miss a game. <laughs> I mean it. <laughs> right. Um, I also wanted to ask you about, uh, so we talked a little bit about like the testing, blood testing, urine testing, and, um, how, you know, how important is it to also do blood collection? Like we do in powerlifting, there's, you know, we, we've had this conversation in previous podcasts, but not been able to speak to it on any kind of scientific level of, you know, how important is it to collect blood and, um, are, you know, what you can find with blood, you can't find with urine or, or now, possibly in the future, if you're doing what they, well, you know, we're now hearing as well, these, uh, DNA passports, you know, it's kind of looking back on how things have changed and why they might've yes. changed and in yes. the importance of blood versus urine. Yes. So hey, can I add on to that? Um, also yeah, care and muscle biopsies because that's that's one of the things that you were you were talking briefly about at the beginning um so like if you can just throw that in there as well yeah so well i suppose we have to discuss a little bit how well for powerlifting anyway let's be real steroids are going to be the category of drugs that most likely people are going to want to take okay um and you've got these two major categories of steroids that the world anti-doping agency delineates them that you've got these exogenous steroids so all of these synthetic steroids um, that can be taken by injections or orally. So you've got things like nandrolone, trembolone, baldenone from injections. Then you've got things like dianabol, uh, turinabol, winstrol, stanozolol that can be taken orally or from injection. All of those steroids, when you take them, generate these whole swathe of different metabolites that can be detectable inside urine and they all have different detection windows so say for example nandrolone a single injection nandrolone can be detectable for up to nine months okay Mm. whereas you're looking at before the improvement of the detection of oral steroids some of them only at weeks now it's at months as well but as far as i'm aware not nine months so there's there's large disparities there and there there's no passport or monitoring going on at that time they're just looking for the those metabolites that are unique to those drugs. So then they know for sure that you were exposed to that drug and then intentionally or not intentionally, then that's becomes what's then further investigated. Um, Endogenous steroids are things like testosterone that are made normally by the human body that can be taken in various different preparations, uh, patches, gels, creams, injections, even a nasal spray. And also within the category of endogenous steroids, you've then got precursors to testosterone and uh, a few other uh, related compounds. Um, 
Now, when you take, for example, testosterone is the easiest one to talk about. Inside the urine of a normal person, the excretion of testosterone and its epima, which is a mirror image of testosterone that's not active inside the body. It's just it's created in the natural biosynthetic pathway of testosterone as a byproduct. You excrete epitestosterone and testosterone normally in a one to one ratio in a normal person. If you were to then inject testosterone uh, into your body, the levels of testosterone in your body go up but the levels of epitestosterone stay the same. And so your ratio of testosterone to epitestosterone increase. Yeah. And it's regarded as a four to one ratio is suspicious and likely occurring because of the administration of testosterone. And there's stu administration studies out there of using oral testosterone or patches and gels of creams of testosterone, where it will elevate the T to E ratio in the subsequent hours after administration up to 150 to one oh or even God. more. So there's a big, big spike. So it's a big difference, right? But oral testosterone under counterweight patches, gels and creams. There's administration studies out there. You can go and find them where the TE ratio will only transiently get elevated above four to one for maybe a few hours after administration. Oh. Okay. So you may only temporarily go above four to one and then drop back down. Okay. Uh, so, if you get drug tested at that time and you're, is, you're above four to one, then it's a suspicious result. And then it will then be subjected to the carbon isotope ratio uh, test. Okay. The IRMS test, which that will then look at the carbon isotopes present inside that testosterone and essentially pharmaceutical testosterone and testosterone that's made for these preparations, the starting materials in that process are plant-based. And so the carbon inside that plant-based molecule has originally come from the atmosphere and from photosynthesis has been integrated into that molecule. And that carbon has a different isotope ratio versus the carbon that's present inside the testosterone of your body. And they can compare the two and confirm that the carbon circulating inside that testosterone or it was in your blood and is now in your urine has a plant-based signature. And if it has a plant-based signature, then for sure you've administered it. It's basically impossible that you'd ever have that and then that not be the case. So then that confirms that you've taken testosterone. Now, they will. it's expensive and difficult to do that test. And so that will only be done if you're above the four to one ratio, if this is a standalone drug test. Okay. So we're talking of single just urine testing, one off. It then gets a little bit more complicated because they've now discovered that people genetically differ in their ability to put testosterone into their urine. And there's a natural mutation that you can harbor that affects this. So you inherit two copies of um, one copy of your genes from your mum, one copy of your genes from your dad. So you have two copies of each gene inside your body. There is a gene that is responsible for placing testosterone into your urine. Okay. It's called the UGT2B17 gene. And it actually, sure. it's actually the gene that's responsible for basically adding an acidic group to testosterone to enable it to be water soluble, to go inside your urine in the normal excretory pathway of testosterone. And because testosterone is a fat soluble molecule by default. So to get it excreted into urine and urinated, an acidic group has to get placed onto the testosterone. So it's water soluble and it gets excreted. Now you can naturally lack two copies of those, of that gene. And you can have that, that, that enzyme that does that process is not in your body at all because you genetically lack two copies. 
Now, you're still normal. You still have normal biology. And it actually turns out that you have another enzyme that acts and actually does that process for you. But it's nowhere near as effective. It's still enough for normal human metabolism. But that means your natural testosterone to epitestosterone ratio could actually naturally be around 0.1 to 1, as opposed to a normal person has two functional copies of the gene where it should be 1 to 1. So if a person has two copies of the gene and they are 1 to 1, let's say they take some sort of testosterone, it could go upwards to 150 to one. Okay. Or maybe even less than that, say 10, 15, 20 to one. You then go above the four to one threshold. You then do the, the confirmatory test to confirm it's plant-based testosterone. You've tested positive for testosterone afterwards. If you lack two copies of this gene, totally natural, normal human metabolism, you take testosterone, your ratio at baseline is 0.1 to one. The testosterone enters your system. You might only go up to one to one or maybe even two to one. And thereby from this standalone drug test, you've not surpassed the four to one threshold. And thereby you're then not subjected to the confirmatory isotope ratio test. And then you don't test positive. So, and there's even studies out there where people are injected with 300 milligrams of testosterone, which is above recommended guidelines of testosterone replacement therapy would be regarded as a super physiological dose. Yes, it's less than what bodybuilders take, but it still would be performance enhancing. And those people that have two lack two copies of of the gene they they don't go above the four to one threshold wow in that administration event so they could be taking testosterone at 300 milligrams be subjected to the standalone single drug test and pass it okay whereas their friend who happens to have both copies of the genes takes the exact same drug regimen cycle and tests positive because he's excreting a normal amount of testosterone in his body goes above four to one and gets caught so this is why standalone drug testing for endogenous steroids has been deemed insufficient and so that's where the passport system comes along okay. and they call it they call it this the athlete biological passport and you have both the blood component and a steroid component and the steroidal module of the athlete biological passport is its technical term and it's from uh urine only at this moment in time i think it's going to get upgraded at some point into blood that's what the research is trying to do but at this moment in time it's urine only and the idea here is you monitor through multiple drug tests through time someone's testosterone to epitestosterone ratio there's also other markers in the urine that get monitored there's about three or four others but testosterone to epitestosterone is is the most noted one and you'll monitor how it fluctuates through time because if you are happen to be one of these people that lacks two copies of this gene and your natural ratio is 0.1 to 1 if you suddenly spike up to 1 to 1 and then back down to 0.1 to 1 in terms of a difference change that's actually a big change and if you've been hovering about 0.1 to 1 for say four or five drug tests in a row and then suddenly you spike up to one to one and then go back down yes you've not surpassed the four to one threshold that's been set for regular standalone tests but what you can do is statistically compare how much variation is there in this person through time and if there's suddenly a spike in results that surpass what the statistical model says is a normal amount of variation for that person based on the variation we've seen for them through time, then it will get flagged and it will be flagged as a, as a abnormal value of the athlete biological passport. And if you have enough data readings on someone, then in theory, that's how they could get caught. Uh, and what then happens is 
that in itself is not a diagnostic finding. Okay, you've you've had a variation above your normal level of variation for you that the statistical model has deemed is too much. You then have to have that result reviewed by three anti-doping experts who are accredited to the WADA laboratory system, review your passport and your readings, and they'll review how, how much of a variation is it? How much is it the spike? Does everything line up? And if two or three of them agree that this is indeed, it seems way out of the ordinary and is abnormal, then you may then be subjected to the isotope ratio test, which would then be confirmatory that indeed you have plant-based testosterone in your urine. Then for that steroid endogenous marker, you would then be uh, sanctioned. So that if standalone drug tests have these kind of thresholds for these ratios of different endogenous steroids inside your urine, and from a single administration events, if you have a normal genetic profile, you would go above the current thresholds that are deemed if you've taken drugs close enough to the point of the test occurring. Um, but if your genetics adhere to what i've just described then that standalone single drug test is never going to catch you mm. so that's why you then have to monitor how their profile changes through time because that then will eventually catch you if you're getting drug tested close enough relative to the point where you've administered the drug so injectable testosterone can elevate your testosterone to epitestosterone ratio for weeks and if you're taking it consistently for a period of weeks it could go on even longer than that if you're taking a high amount but patches gels creams testosterone, undercanaway, oral pills, nasal sprays, they only transiently over a period of hours increase your testosterone to epitestosterone ratio. So unless you're actually getting drug tested right there and then soon after administration, you're unlikely to get caught with those preparations. But then the question is, how performance enhancing is it is to take a patch of gel or cream versus, you know, absolutely going to be super physiological doses of testosterone from injections. Um, but people would still argue that they're uh, it could be recovery benefits from taking those kinds of things. Um, and so that's where the passport's coming involved for steroids. There is a similar passport as well for blood uh, that runs off a similar system, but that's looking at blood doping, which for power thing is not really going to be that relevant. But interestingly enough, there was one weightlifter, Russian weightlifter, when the samples were reanalyzed, um, they actually were taking EPO. So who knows? Maybe some of these strength athletes are taking EPO to boost their recovery. <laughs> They're like, do you have a hobby sport, yeah. sir? This is not so, helping you. Yeah. <laughs> Recovery and, benefits, maybe. Um, like yeah. training, yeah. tra training duration, training volume. Like I could. Yeah. I was going to ask uh, you though, yeah. uh, before but, we move off I'll this. I just say the blood thing there yeah. is, so we've talked about steroids there. Blood doesn't really, for powerlifting, maybe the next couple of cat next category of drugs potentially is stimulants, maybe. But then again, you'd be kind of foolish to take that on a day of a competition because the chance of you getting caught is pretty much guaranteed. So we could say that's written off. Then it's a diuretic, but then again, diuretic detection windows now exist. They're pretty good. It's not like it was in the seventies where you could have had people taking diuretics <laughs> on the day of a competition and then having oral steroids a week beforehand and then getting away with it. It's not like that anymore. And the next thing then potentially is growth hormone. And it's a bit contentious as to how performance enhancing is growth hormone, but we know it does increase protein synthesis inside the muscle, can help with fat loss and lipolysis as well arguably could also help with recoverability joint health and integrity so it could be envisaged that it could be useful in a sport like powerlifting where there is some constant strain on people's joints you know and so that is only detectable via blood there's there's no other way to detect growth hormone except for via blood it's got a really interesting story about how that came about because they knew growth hormone was being used in the in the 90s 
and there was no test for it whatsoever. But the people who were involved in the Bay Area laboratory uh, scandal, the Balco scandal, they knew they were taking growth hormone, but no test existed. The test, they started a project called the GH2000 project, which in the year 2000 said, we're going to try and generate a test for growth hormone. The test doesn't come out till 10 years after that. And it's not catching its first athlete until 2012, as far as I know, or around that time period. So it takes a really long time. It was only possible to detect growth hormone via blood. And a lot of the administration studies that you're seeing in the literature, it only has, if it's taken in moderate to low doses, a detection window of 24 to 72 hours. Holy and, and, smokes. And, and only detectable by blood. So I personally think that's one of the substances that is probably being underdetected in For the strength sport communities. Because, For sure. yeah. But IPF athletes, like I've seen Blaine Sumner have a, have a blood test. It happens. The IPF does blood test the lab competition. But if the growth hormone, it's not making an accusation towards Blaine or anyone, you know, but if growth hormone only has that kind of detection window and your blood test is very infrequent, well, you might put two and two together. And as you said, Roy, it's the cost-benefit potentially ratio analysis that you may want to take that. Um, so that's definitely one category of drug they're going to try to improve the detectability of. And so uh, it, I, the science of the way the drug's excreted in the body, a urine test is never going to happen. They tried to do that initially, but realized it was not possible. And that's why it's only detectable in blood. And the International Olympic Committee is moving forward to try to come up with new ways to detect drugs. And one way that they think could be useful in the future is something called a dried blood spot or a DBS, which has been used a large amount in the medical community before because you essentially prick someone's finger with a very small needle and a very small droplet of blood comes out. It would be exactly the same as if a diabetic was trying to test their blood glucose with a glucometer. Small, small amount of blood. You would then put that tiny amount of blood, you might do it four times on a card, and detect four and put down four droplets of blood. It's very cheap to do. The cards can be stored at very cold, it can, can even be transported at room temperature, unlike mm. normal blood, which has got to be transported at cold chain. So it's got to be cool the whole way through. These can be posted in a regular card, you know, postcard. So regular oh. envelope. And they collect tiny droplets of blood that's very cheap to collect and relatively cheap to analyze. So the idea is you could go into the Olympic Village and collect droplets of blood from basically everyone and store it and they're potentially planning on doing some of this at tokyo or maybe at the beijing games or afterwards because if a new drug test comes out that has the ability to detect growth hormone for a potentially longer window of time with these tiny droplets of blood well then you've gone out you've gone and you've actually collected everything and stored that way and that's what they're trying to to, to go towards and what what is interesting is when you look at the reanalysis re of these samples from weightlifting from the 2008 and 2012 games, so you've got uh, in total 61 weightlifters testing positive from the 2008 and 2012 Olympic Games when their samples are reanalyzed. Okay, uh, 50. Uh, I'll just get the exact number because I want to make sure this is this is right. You've got uh, 58 out of 61 of those athletes is because of the detection of terinabol or Winstrol, which is exogenous anabolic steroids. Okay, there's, there's three weightlifters who are taking other substances. They all happen to be from China. They all won gold medals, and they all were taking growth hormone-releasing peptide 2, which actually happens to generate a metabolite which is detectable in urine. Um, but they're the only, the only, only 
country that was taking that and identified from the retesting to be mm-hmm. taking that anyway. So and they may so, be like a, just on a doping, different doping protocol that maybe they're ahead being like, they're only testing urine. You know, we are, it's very hard to catch urine maybe here yes. and there. Like, yeah, that's where yes. you're starting to see the shadows and sign yes. warning signs, right? Yes. So, I mean, as you said, it's only shadows, nothing confirmatory, but right. it is, does make you raise an eyebrow um, for sure. Especially because when you look at the urine metabolite of growth hormone releasing peptide, it, as far as I know, is only detectable for a matter of days. So it's highly likely that those athletes were potentially, if they were genuinely doping, of course, it could be contamination. We don't really know. But if they were genuinely doping, they were potentially taking that substances at home Olympic Games very close to their date of competition, which would be a big risk to take. So they must have been relatively confident they were going to get away with it if they were doing it genuinely. Hmm. So that does make you raise an eyebrow. And they're the only country that's caught taking growth hormone releasing peptides from the retests. Everyone, literally 58 out of the 61 all of those others, they're taking some sort of synthetic steroid. So it yeah. is interesting. So, so that's why I don't know, you know, but you see, you could be joining dots together and you're seeing bits and patches of information and you're joining dots where there's no connections here. But still, my, my inkling is that growth hormone could well be one of the most underdetected substances in all sports, but particularly strength sports, because it wouldn't surprise me if people use it because of its, its benefits with potential joint health I, I, um, by no means am i an expert but i remember reading about like bodybuilders introducing it and using it like dorian yates has been on podcast and uh, just because he uses doesn't mean he's an expert either but he talks about like um i think he was going into the increased muscle mass and definitely the gains that bodybuilders have seen it that there is you would think a, a positive impact on the performance of a strength athlete to be able to use it so um the it's fact interesting that, you say that yeah because when you look at the administration studies, it's nowhere near as clear cut as it is with steroids that they're performance enhancing. Hmm. But when you go way back in the 1970s, the American College of Sports Medicine, with the available studies at that time, published a position stand where they said anabolic steroids are not performance enhancing for athletes to take because that was the available size at the time. What did all the athletes say? Steroids work. Yeah, what the studies yeah, say? Yeah. They, they don't work because the studies are underdosed, not for long enough, don't have controls, difficult to do. Then you draw this conclusion from them that's not actually accurate. And then maybe with growth form, the same thing has happened. Maybe they're underdosed, not for long enough, those kinds of things. And so, yes, the athlete says performance enhancing, but the studies don't necessarily reflect that and spell that out. But you do know from mechanistic results and things like that, that it does increase protein synthesis inside the cell can help with fat loss but That's huge right there <laughs> we don't we, we don't necessarily know how performance enhancing really it is and but also there is a placebo effect from taking a lot of these substances you know if you think they're going to work then maybe they will work um and so actually second secondary benefits like rather than direct muscle growth like you can train harder because now your tendons can hand, exactly stand it. up yes. to it more and like yes. is that going to show up and and the sort of studies that that are looking right. directly for performance enhancement like Short-term studies, remember? It would, it would have to be a really well-designed study to pick up that yes. sort of thing, right? Yes. And um, what about sleep as well? Uh, you know, so, um, but there's also... The biggest like, performance-enhancing drug of them all is sleep. Yeah, but there's also, we're talking very favorably about growth hormone usage here. There was obviously downsides to potentially using it, but um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. That's, that's definitely one that, that makes me think. And powerlifting as well, of all sports, um, its frequency of blood testing is, is not going to be that high because it's not like the endurance sports where 
their passport for detecting blood doping works off collecting blood. So that's, that's going to happen very often to athletes. Whereas in powerlifting, the passport for steroids, the most likely used substances works off collection of urine. And really the only benefit they're probably going to get out of taking blood is detecting growth hormone. It's expensive to do, has to be transported at a cold temperature, has to be collected by a trained phlebotomist, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't happen that often. So this is the issue with anti-doping. There's the science is not going to catch from a single drug test, every single drug protocol and regimen that someone could be taking really with current, the science has definitely improved since the seventies, eighties and nineties for sure. Yeah. Hence these findings of, of, of all these people getting caught after the fact, but it's still for me at this moment in time comes down to the fact is the frequency of drug testing at this moment in time with the current science is the most important. I do think the science is going to continue to improve in the future, whether, whether it be through dry blood spots, as I described, or whether it be through, the changes that drugs cause in gene expression inside whole blood that's been investigated by my supervisor quite heavily in regards to blood doping a little bit into anabolic steroids not too much maybe our study will help uh, a little bit in that regard but one study you're never going to get a ready to roll drug test out of one study as i described the growth hormone we're talking at least 10 years so uh, i think the detection window of all drugs is going to improve as time goes on which I do think we're then going to transition to unfortunately probably seeing this pattern repeating itself where more and more medals are reallocated retrospectively. Hmm. Uh, did you, I, I know you had some questions there, Roy. I got a couple, but I don't want to monopolize. Um, did you get a chance? Yeah. Like if we were going to, uh, I guess this is a little bit hypothetical, but like if we were going to design like a, like a drug like if we were going to modify the existing drug testing regimens, like what recommendations would you, would you say? Like, like you've alluded to a bunch of things, uh, like you've alluded to um, dry blood spot testing and like more out of competition testing and things like that. Like, what would you, what would you summarize as like your recommendations if you were going to, going to say, write a, write a report to someone who was running a, like a drug, drug testing regimen? Uh, well, if you had all the money in the world and you had, yeah, let's, let's say you've got as much the, money as you want, as much money as you want. And, and you can get into every single country without visa troubles, without quarantining issues. Right. And I don't write a wish list. Yeah. Write a wish list. Yeah. <laughs> the water wish list. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it would be that you would be drug tech. Well, I mean, you, if you urine tested somebody say, uh, every month, it would be very difficult to near impossible for them to be using synthetic oral steroids based on the detection windows that we know they could in theory. And this is a little bit happened with the Russian doping scandal in the movie Icarus where uh, Dr. Grigory Rodchenkov, who bizarrely was the man who was the director of the Moscow anti-doping laboratory, who was involved in the swapping of the urine of the Sochi games has written a book about it called the Rodchenkov affair. Highly recommend people buy that and read that. It's very interesting. He, encourage people how to dope and they would take these oral steroids sublingually fancy term but it basically means you take them under the tongue so they would rinse their mouth with an oral steroid pill that was crushed inside alcohol and he actually encouraged men and women to take different alcohol i think one of them had whiskey and one of them had another one and they would rinse it around in their mouth and you've got blood capillaries underneath your tongue uh, and so that are very very thin and very close to the, to the mucous membrane of your tongue and so they you know, the drug can directly diffuse from the liquid straight into uh, your bloodstream basically and bypass the metabolism of the liver which is what generates all of these char characteristic metabolites that are known to science that will catch you wow. so they could be taking them that way where they're then much harder to detect but even then 
some still could slip down and go through the liver and get caught that way. Um, if you're wanting to catch someone who's taking growth hormone, well, I mean, you've got to take their blood really frequently, really, really frequently. Uh, so at best, if you had all the money in the world uh, every day, every other day, is that ever going to happen? No. Um, yeah. but that's currently where we're at maybe what would be better is to, to, to do long-term serial long-term sample storage from people that would also be a backup plan you'd want to do that for blood and urine as well um but we we don't have we don't have all of that and also all these time frames i say there there is a bit of a sliding window in there because remember it's ethically dubious and difficult to give people performance enhancing drugs in studies and so when they are given, they're given in very low dosages for very short periods of times that give you the, some of these timeframes I've described. Someone that is then taking that same substance for a period of days, regularly, weeks, the detection windows change and vary. And as I've described, we've known now that there is large genetic differences in the excretion of testosterone in your urine. That's been studied very heavily. That could well be the same for lots of other drugs as well, but it's just not known about. It could well be the same for growth hormone and other things. Who knows? So... Um, that's why I would try to encourage. One thing you, you mentioned before, you said talk about muscle biopsies and things like that. There's actually uh, a researcher out of Yemea University in Sweden called Anders Ericsson. And um, he has published a study, it came out maybe a year ago now, where he looked at the proteome of people who were taking anabolic steroids. So that means from a muscle biopsy they've extracted all of the proteins inside the muscle because there's many different types of proteins responsible for many different cellular actions and characterize them and these are people who stopped taking steroids years ago and their skeletal muscle proteome and the signature of proteins and the quantities of proteins that they had in those past users was actually different to your lifelong natty and so that potentially in their mind was saying that could be used as one way to deline delineate people However, it's never going to be approved to be allowed to do a muscle biopsy on people. And also you're looking at people who use steroids for a very long period of time. So if they were getting drug tested enough anyway, they would have got caught in, the, in that moment. But uh, there is, he, at least in them, you can actually find a video of him where he does a, a micro biopsy on somebody and takes just the tiniest amount of muscle out. And in theory, you could use that to, to do proteomic analysis. Um, <clears throat> but that would never get ethically approved. I don't think will ever happen. Um, yeah. So if you had to generate the best doping, raging, anti-doping protocols to catch people, it will be very as frequent as possible blood and urine testing. And then it makes it basically near impossible that they could drug test at this moment in time. And if you can't do it as frequently as possible, then I say you default to then collecting as many samples for the long term as you can in case the science improves and you can go back and look at them and then do what you can to try and catch them. I am. Um, uh, so. I am. Um... So I have a heart out in five minutes. Let me just say something. You're a phenomenal speaker. You came recommended recommended by a friend of mine, uh, Peter Spence, who heard you on a different podcast. I think it was Omar's podcast with Eric Helms as well. And um, said, this guy's phenomenal. You got, I wanted uh, somebody in your field to come on the podcast and talk about, um, you know, anti-doping protocols, testing, and some of the things that we've, we found. And uh, he's like, I can't recommend this guy enough. And I'm like, you're a hard, you're a hard guy to get a hold of initially, but <laughs> holy smokes, my friend, um, you filled two hours so easy. So you're, I'm, I'm by no means an expert in this field, obviously. And 
you speak on it in ways that are, I can actually digest what you're saying. I'm following, I understand what you're saying. And um, you're relaying the information so well. I cannot be more appreciative, first off. I just wanted to get that out the way because, you know, time is another friend. I got five, we're, we don't have to leave now, but I still got five more minutes, but uh, I wanted to say that first off. Thank you, dude. You're, you're, you're an amazing speaker on this. Um, and I would love to have you back again because I feel like this is something that we could continuously talk about and need to. You know, this is a conversation that needs to be had. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so let me just get that out the way. Did did you, Rory, did you have another question there? Because I got a couple, but um, uh, knowing that we, we're, we're coming out of time, I don't want to, I know you had a few that lined up. I got all my important ones out. Okay. Uh, I know we don't have a heck of a lot of time, my friend. So, uh, you know, with that in mind, um, did you see, is there a major difference in terms of the testing and the test failures, et cetera, between men and women and possibly the protocols? Because obviously physiologically our bodies aren't necessarily the same. So different PEDs might be used, different tests may be needed. Or uh, in terms of that, what can you say? That's interesting, yes, because I... uh you would think basically that um well so steroids in men and in women have adverse side effects but some of the steroid side effects in men will alleviate through time and are not permanent whereas in women they can get permanently androgenized which means they get the masculine side they get basically masculinized so the hair growth enhanced hair growth that could be permanent uh, uh, the deepening of their voice can indeed be permanent. There's some studies out there, you can see them case reports of women who've taken anabolic steroid injections of things like nandrolone only for a few weeks. They've been misguided in the quantity of steroids and they've taken relatively large amount. And even after two week period, their voice has become permanently lower. Wow. And uh, they are then in these case reports as warnings to people to think about what they've done, to be more educated about what they're doing and to understand that this is an irreversible side effect of which this lady in this case report, even with surgery has struggled to reverse. Um, And so that may make you lead to think that maybe women would be less likely to take anabolic steroids because they're concerned about those side effects. But like with all side effects of anabolic steroids, it's a complicated mixture of drug use, dosage use, length of exposure um, to as how severe and your genetic response to the drugs as to how severe the side effects are. Um, but if you look at in that weightlifting subset, I actually didn't include this in the final paper, but I've just found it again. If you look at the top 10 most detected substances, only uh, a stimulant called methylhexanamine actually showed a very large difference of where it was greater than 70% detectability in one sex where 88 percent of detection occurrences for that stimulant were occurring in males but that means where the most detected substances really the bulk of them in out of the top 10 are steroids so that means for the substances classified as endogenous or exogenous steroids a minimum of 31 percent of detection occurrences did happen in women across those 565 sanctions and the average was 36 percent so that maybe makes you think that, you know, you've still got a 30% of detection occurrences for these steroids are occurring in women. So women are still taking anabolic steroids. Uh, and they potentially could be paying the price for them if their reckless usage is occurring. 
I mean, I've heard horror stories, but you're not, I'm not, I don't know how realistic they are of some women, you know, taking some of these testosterone, taking some of these PEDs and you hear like stories of like their genitals changing and never going back. And it's like, listen, yes. this will happen. This is the word, like your voice is one thing. Okay. I mean, yeah. it's workable, but literally your genitals changing and you're not going back. There's case reports of the clitoral enlargement being from, you can go and find these where it will triple in size uh, from three centimeters, say to nine centimeters of wow. irreversible enlargement. And some people will then feel incredibly self-conscious after that change has occurred and it can change how they feel about their whole bo their body and it will not change. Yeah. And that's a very large risk that women are gonna potentially have to take. Whereas in men uh, and in women, things like elevations in blood pressure, elevations in your bad cholesterol, uh, temporary changes in your mood, uh, elevations in your liver enzymes, all of those things when you stop taking steroids can go away. In, and in men, in women, all of those other things could potentially then be permanent. In men, potentially, if you're taking steroids for too long, blood pressure is really, really high. You can have long-term kidney damage, potentially. Um, blood, blood cholesterol levels in a bad profile for prolonged periods of time builds up plaques. And potentially as well, you affect your ability to produce viable sperm if you're not coming off them correctly and you don't know what you're doing. Um, those are potentially long things for men, but a lot of them can be remedied. The kidney damage, not so much. Uh, the plaque buildup, not so much. And the potentials with fertility potentially depends on what's going on. Um, but with women, yeah, some serious, serious long-term changes that can occur. And I don't think that's talked about enough. Uh, I mean, look, this might be, uh, we're running out of time, but that might be an excellent segue. If we, if we have you back again, I would love to have you back again, but I'm glad we, we, we somewhat focused on what we wanted when, when we had you on here is talking about anti-doping in sports, what test results have shown us previously, um, some of the better protocols to have, and we could probably even dive in further. Um, but then maybe down the road, we can have you back and talk about some of the repercussions to athletes who might be a stitch short-sighted uh, using these. And, um, and there's some adverse effects that uh, in the immediate that you're in danger of. And then even if you get past that and stop, um, it can follow you. And it's, it, it doesn't, it just always doesn't end there. Uh, and it's different for men and for women. And um, it's got it. Some of the, some of this information has to be said because it's not being put out there, but uh, my friend, we've run out of time. I am very grateful to have you on there. Uh, you're very, yeah, thank awesome. you very much. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't be happier. Let people know how they could um, find you and read your papers and hear and get a hold of you if they ever want you in a podcast, et cetera. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, I'll send you a link to my ORCID profile. That's then got a list of all of my research papers on there. A lot of them are open access and free to read. But uh, alternative, you can email me if you ever struggle to get them. I've also made a lot of the data available and publicly available to people to look at, particularly for the doping and weightlifting paper and the doping at the Summer Olympics paper. Um, but that's the, that's the best way to, to see what everything we've described today you'll find there. And um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad it was informative and yeah, love to come back. Uh, maybe when I've got some of the results from my, our study in muscle memory and steroids. That 100 might be an interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep in touch. Going to take a bit of time, but we'll eventually hopefully get there. Well, I mean, we, we can have you back several times. I think mm -hmm. after this um, podcast comes up, we're probably going to get follow-up questions from listeners being like, Oh, 
Can you ask him this? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sure people are going to hear this and have follow-up questions. I mean, you, you've touched on so much. Uh, we squeezed as so much information as we could in this uh, two-hour block. Rory, uh, real quick, how could people get a hold of you, sir? Uh, best way to get a hold of me is Rory Lynch on Instagram or sisyphusstrength.com. There's some free stuff up there. Launched my app today, which is pretty cool. So check it out. There it is for, for your powerlifting coaching, uh, Rory Lynch. And gentlemen, uh, much appreciated. We did it three different time zones. And uh, talking about sleep as a PED, I would test negative right now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with that, I thank you. We'll keep in touch. And um, until next time, see you, gentlemen. Thank you.